Good morning, church. Um, just one more little side announcement before we get started. Um, for those who are interested in going to Israel in 2025, um, Linda, the, the travel agent, uh, she's going to be here at 1 o'clock today. And there's going to be a, a meeting in the youth room. And so if you got questions, because I know people got questions based on what's going on over there. And she's mentioned they've already taken two tours there in the last couple months. And so tours are still going on. But anyhow, um, for those who have expressed interest, just to let you know, this is uh, an important informational meeting. If you haven't signed up or expressed interest to go, you could still uh, show up to the meeting and, and see if uh, maybe you might uh, want to change your mind and go. But I just wanted to put that out there, 1 o'clock today in the youth room we'll be having that meeting. That being said, uh, if you will, uh, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 18. Fasting without hypocrisy is what I'm titling this. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 18. And once you're there, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. Uh, I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And this is what our Lord Jesus says. He says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of God. Let's go to our, our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much that we're able to gather together this morning and sing songs of praise to you um, and songs of adoration, that we're able to pray together, that we will be taking the Lord's Supper together, Lord. And we pray that we, we, we're thankful to you that we get to open your word together and see what you have for us. I pray, God, that, that you would just remove me as much as possible and that this would be your word going to your people that your people would be edified and really just learn what you want us to know about fasting. And, uh, and Lord, that again, we would uh, just be made more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus through your word. And we pray if there's any unbelievers here that you would save them as they hear your gospel. So we just pray all these things to you. We pray that you get all the glory and it's in Jesus' name. We pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. So this morning, I have the privilege of talking about everyone's favorite religious practice, fasting. Wait, wait, I hear people laughing. So fasting's not your favorite thing in the world? It's not as fun as going to Disneyland? Which, what, what's wrong with you people? You don't like being hungry and getting a headache that lasts all day? Now, of course, if I was being serious, you'd think we we're in the twilight zone. But don't worry, I'm being facetious. In our culture, fasting, we avoid it like the plague. But interestingly enough, the people of the Bible, they fasted regularly. It was not something they avoided like the plague. It wasn't an idea that they dreaded. Now, the reason why they were such, uh, such good fasters and ardent fasters is because they understood what fasting is. They understood what fasting does, spiritually speaking. I think in our day, in our time, especially in our culture, we've neglected fasting to our own hurt. And so, honestly, I'm glad that our text is having us talk about fasting this morning. Jesus is going to teach us that fasting should be a regular part of our lives. But he's also going to warn us so that we don't do it in an evil way. 
He's going to get to the motive of it. And so the main point of the text is real simple. It's just like what he said about almsgiving. Let your fasting be for God's eyes. Let your fasting be for God's eyes. Now, of course, how do we do that? Well, Jesus, in a real simple way, teaches us how in two parts. First, he tells you how not to do it. Then he tells you how to do it. It doesn't get any easier than that. After he tells you how not to fast, and then he tells you how to fast, you will see clearly that our fasting is supposed to be before God's eyes. And so we'll see that as we go through the text. Now, as we are continuing in the book of Matthew, we have been traveling through the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. It started in chapter 5, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 7, and we are now a little more than halfway done with the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but I feel like we've learned a lot from the Lord since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Ultimately, what he's doing is he's telling us what the flourishing person is like. He told us that they are poor in spirit. Mournful, humble, righteous, merciful, they're peacemakers, and they are persecuted on account of Jesus. These people are the people who flourish because they know their God personally. They know him through their Savior Jesus, and they live in this world with wisdom. They're wise in this world as they're awaiting the perfect world to come. And so because of that, Jesus said they're like salt and light. If you're going to be the flourishing person, you will be like salt and light. Salt flavors things. And it was also used to preserve things worth preserving. Well, as believers, we do the same. We show the world God's flavor of righteousness, and we seek to preserve the things that are good. And then think about light. Light illuminates the darkness. This world, the entire world, is in moral and spiritual darkness. And when we live faithful lives to God, when we live biblical lives, then we are shining God's light into very dark places. And it gets the attention of those who live in darkness. And so by us living faithful lives, we do function as salt and light. But of course, that begs the question, well, what does that look like? How do we live like salt and light? And we are in the part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching us that. Now, the first thing he told us is that we will live lives that obey the law of God. But of course, he's not talking about the way that the religious leaders obeyed it. They obeyed the law only on the surface level. So it looked like they were very obedient. But what Jesus is getting at is, is, no, we obey the law of God all the way down to the heart. Okay, we follow God's law down to the heart level. So it's not just that we resist murder, but we resist the anger and hatred that causes murder. It's not that we just resist adultery, but we resist the lust and the frivolous divorce that leads to adultery. And so that that is what it means to follow God's law. We get at the heart and the actions. Well, after showing us what it means to live according to God's law, Jesus then moves on to the topic of personal righteousness or personal piety. And that's where we're at right now. Now, what do I mean by personal righteousness or personal piety? Well, there are certain good things that a believer is supposed to do, like giving to the poor, like praying, like fasting. Jews label all three of these under the one word tzedakah, which is just the Hebrew word for righteousness. But when you hear a Jew say, are you practicing tzedakah, they're talking about these three things, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus is talking about the same thing here, and he brings up the same three things. Now listen, these are good things. 
giving to the poor, praying, fasting. We're supposed to do them. But Jesus lets us know there's a problem that can accompany these three things. These three things pose a unique temptation. They present the temptation to do these things in order to get attention. For example, if we are generous and we let everyone see just how much we give to the poor, Jesus says we are hypocrites. Because we're not doing this good thing to please God. We're not even doing this thing because we love the poor. Instead, we're doing it because we want people to see us do it. We want them to see our generosity. We want them to think we are good and holy people. Well, if that's why you do it, you're doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And Jesus makes it clear there is no reward in that. He says the same thing about prayer. If you pray in public just so you could be seen by people, Jesus says you're just acting. You're not having a conversation with God. You are acting. You want people to think you are spiritual or deep. Now, we know intrinsically there's nothing wrong with praying in public if your heart is not seeking attention. But if it is and you pray in public, then you get no no reward for that. Jesus also tells us that we should not pray like unbelievers, like pagans, thinking they can manipulate God with incantations and repetitious words or with flattery or acting like they can wheel and deal with God. That's not how it works. So if you pray that way, God is not going to answer those prayers. Now, right after he got done telling us how not to pray, Jesus hits the pause button and he gives us detailed instruction on how to pray. And really, he interrupts the flow. You know, he says, don't give to the poor to be seen by people. Don't pray to be seen by people. Next, you would then expect him to say, don't fast to be seen by people. And he does get to that in our text this morning. But after prayer and before fasting, he hits the pause button because he wants to teach us how to pray the right way. In fact, his lesson on prayer, which we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, it's the exact center of the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's what we spent my last two sermons on. He taught us that we're to pray for God's honor above everything else. He tells us we are to pray for the future, when God's name will always be honored, when God's kingdom is here in fullness, and when God's will happens on earth exactly as it does in heaven. We're supposed to pray for that, first and foremost. Why? Because when that day comes... We will never hunger again. We will never sin again. We will never be vulnerable again and need protection. Instead, we will be in God's very presence. We will have indestructible bodies that are incapable of sinning, and we're going to live in a perfect world that lasts forever. So Jesus is telling us to fix our eyes on that. We're to pray every day for that day to fix our eyes and hearts on what's eternal rather than this temporary age. But Jesus also knows we live in this present evil age, this temporary age, and there are certain things we need to survive. And so he does tell us to pray for those. Pray for our daily bread, which means everything we need to survive. He also told us to pray constantly for forgiveness because we constantly sin. We sin every day, so every day we need forgiveness. He also told us if you've been forgiven by God, you better be forgiving others because if you don't, then you yourself are not forgiven. He then also tells us to to pray for protection from the evil one. There are all sorts of things in this world that are trying to knock us off track and get us to sin. These are things bigger than we are. 
So Jesus reminds us also to pray that God would protect us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one. Well, after teaching us what right prayer looks like, Jesus is now ready to get back to the subject of tzedakah or personal piety. So he hits the play button and he picks up right where he left off. After talking about giving to the poor and after talking about prayer, now he's going to talk about fasting. And what he tells us about fasting is just like what he says about giving in prayer. Now, he, in a sense, gave us the bottom line up front back in chapter 6, verse 1. So I want us to look at chapter 6, verse 1 again, because it really tells you what he's going to say in each of these examples. In Matthew 6, 1, Jesus said, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. Okay, so don't practice your righteousness to be seen. And then what does he do? He's going to give us the three examples of that righteousness, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And when we look at each of them closely, he tells you just this, don't do them to be seen. If you do, you get no reward. So with that, let's look a little closer at what he has to say about fasting. First, he tells us how not to fast. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus says this, He says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. Now, again, that is exactly like what he said about almsgiving and prayer. It's the same pattern because it has the same four parts. And so let me remind us of the four parts. First, he brings up the act of piety whenever you fast. Second, he tells you what not to do. Don't put on a gloomy face like the hypocrites. Third, he tells you their bad motive. They're doing it so it becomes obvious to men. And then fourth, he tells you about their reward. They don't get one, right? The only reward they get is people seeing them. Okay, so we're going to go through each of those four parts so we can understand exactly what our Lord is saying. Let's look at the first part. He introduces the act of piety. He lets us know this is about fasting. Verse 16, he says, whenever you fast. Now, I think you know what I'm going to say next, because this is what I said with almsgiving, and this is what I said with prayer. Jesus does not say, if you fast. You notice that? He says, when you fast. Without a show of hands, how many of us live like he says, if you fast? Again, without a show of hands, because they would all go up, right? So, what does it mean if he says, when you fast? It means he assumes that his followers, that believers, will fast. In fact, he states it as if it will be a normal part of the Christian life. And what's interesting is for most of church history, it was. The Christians of the first few centuries were very much into regular fasting. Then, after the early centuries, the church started creating what are called calendar fasts, where the whole church would fast on the same days every year, so now they're calendar fasts. And by the time you get to the end of the Middle Ages, there were way too many fasts. A lot of them were unbiblical. So then you get the Protestant Reformation, where scripture is restored to its rightful place. And we jettisoned all those fasts, okay, because a lot of them were unbiblical. But the reformers still said fasting is something we're supposed to do. So as a concept, it's encouraged. We should be doing it. But it shouldn't become the whole legalism that it became in Roman Catholicism. Well, now you fast forward to today, at least in the United States, and fasting is rarely mentioned. 
It's almost never taught about. If you have been a Christian, let's say for more than 10 years, let me ask you this. When was the last time that you heard an entire sermon on fasting? How many of you have ever heard an entire sermon just on fasting? There might be a few, but it's not often. Now, sometimes fasting will come up in a sermon, but it's rarely preached about as as the main subject. And you want to know something that's crazy? You might not know this. You probably wouldn't get the impression of this, but now you're going to know. Fasting is mentioned more times in the Bible than baptism. Fasting is mentioned 77 times. Baptism is mentioned 75 times. I am very confident that most of us in here could explain the meaning of baptism to others, especially if you were baptized here because we hit, the, we, we hit what it means really hard. But would I have the same confidence that we all could explain fasting biblically? Sure, we could say it means not to eat. No, I mean like really getting to why should we fast? What kinds of fasts? What reasons should we fast? How does it work? Could we actually explain that? Right? And, and the thing is, we should because it's mentioned more times than baptism. There's such a, a paucity or, or, or lack of teaching on this subject, and I think we all know why. In our wealthy American context, we have everything we need in abundance, we have it in excess. Furthermore, we love our comfort so much as a people that I think it's obvious that comfort is one of our idols. We don't want to be uncomfortable. Well, fasting's uncomfortable. Again, you're hungry. You have a headache for most of the day. Now, I know people who will tell me on the fourth day the headache goes away. I'm not fasting four days, you know. Now, some people will, you know. But if you're just going to fast one day, yeah, you're going to have that headache. And I hear if you fast two days, the headache's worse on the second day than the first day. So most people aren't going to do this kind of stuff because it runs against the comfort that we all tend to live for, okay? And so that's why we don't hear that much about fasting, Yet Jesus begins with the words, whenever you fast. So right away, that corrects this habit in us. He assumes fasting is what we will do. Now, does Jesus have the street credibility to say this? Yes, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights back in chapter 4. That was a supernatural and miraculous fast. Even if you don't see him fast too much after that, Nobody fasts 40 days and 40 nights other than Moses and Elijah. And of course, they needed supernatural assistance from God on that. And I'll get to the reasons on their fast a little later. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, which I'll probably get to in several months, um, Jesus makes it clear that once he's raised from the dead and once he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he said his disciples will indeed fast. He is at the right hand of the Father right now. Okay, so the expectation is that we will make use of this spiritual discipline. Now, it is worth mentioning, though, because I want to be as accurate as possible on this subject, fasting is not commanded to us in the Scripture. It's not commanded to the Christian, at least. Giving to the poor is commanded a lot in both the Old and New Testament. Praying is commanded a lot in both the Old and New Testament. But fasting is commanded only one time in the Old Testament, and it was the yearly fast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But we all know that Jesus fulfilled Yom Kippur. He fulfilled the Day of Atonement because he is the atonement. So there is no more requirement that his people fast on that day. It's optional. Some believers do, but it's not required. So if you look for a direct command in Scripture to fast, you won't find one for the church. But... 
Just because there is no command does not mean that we have permission to neglect fasting. After all, Jesus says, when you fast. If our Lord assumes believers will fast, they're supposed to fast. He also said that when he goes to the Father, his disciples will fast. So if you're his disciple, you will fast. So even though it's not commanded, it's still expected. It's still something that we should do. Now, it helps to look at what things people fasted at over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'll give a a better summary of that at the end. But let me give you a short summary now. When you read the Old Testament, you see people fasting for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's because of a broken heart over their own sin. Uh, And sometimes the whole nation is fasting over a broken heart for their their sin. And so they they want to look on the outside like they feel on the inside. And that's why sometimes they'd tear their clothes and, and things like that. Sometimes they would fast because dis- disaster struck and they wanted the Lord to change their fortunes. Sometimes they had a big decision to make and they wanted the Lord to, to guide them in that decision. Sometimes they were afraid of a powerful enemy and so they fasted that God would protect them. Sometimes there was just something they really desired with all their heart and so they wanted to show God, hey, this is really important to me, I'm gonna fast for it. Now, you fast forward to the New Testament, you see a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, We saw Jesus fast for 40 days and 40 nights to prepare for his mission that the Father ordained him to do. In Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, they fast, the church fasts as it's preparing to send missionaries out. In Acts chapter 9, Paul's fasting with the broken heart over his, his sin of persecuting Christians. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas fast before ordaining pastors or elders over the churches that they planted. And so again, we see a lot of reasons people could fast. And a lot of times, like when you take this all together, it seems that it's the normal and wise thing to do when we're seeking God for divine wisdom on really important decisions. We need to keep that practice alive, um, beseeching our Lord with fasting when we got big decisions before us. Now, it's worth noting that if you look at everything the Bible says about fasting, and this is where I'm going to kind of take some shots at at fasting in our context, right? If we take everything the Bible says about fasting, it never once, not a single time, teaches that we should fast for practical reasons or benefits. What do I mean by this? Biblically, people did not fast to lose weight. Biblically, people did not fast to detox their bodies. They did not fast to learn life discipline. There's not a single instance of that. Every single fast in the Bible always was based on a spiritual purpose. I love the way the Puritans put it. They said that feasting fattens the body, which is why we like it so much. But they said fasting fattens the soul. So feasting fattens the body, fasting fattens the soul. So they encourage Christians to do some soul fattening regularly. Now, because our bodies and souls form what we call a psychosomatic union, meaning it's not like your soul's here and your body's here, they're together. They affect each other. And so that means that affliction on the body can lead to growth and maturity in one's soul. This is why suffering and persecution and trials and tribulations produce within us an eternal weight of glory. As the outer man dies what, or wastes away, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, what does he say? That then the outer man wastes away, so the inner man is renewed. 
Okay? So fasting serves that kind of purpose, and it does fatten the soul. Now, when I say all this, I'm not saying that you're wrong if you abstain from food for practical reasons. It's not evil. It's not wrong. If you abstain from food to detox your body, that's fine. Just don't call it biblical fasting. It's a medical fast. Okay, there's a difference. A medical fast is for a physical purpose. A spiritual fast or a biblical fast is for a spiritual purpose. But don't trick yourself into thinking detoxing has anything spiritual about it. Well, you might say, well, it helps me be more disciplined. So does going to the gym, but it doesn't bring you closer to the Lord. There's a lot of people who go to the gym who are very far from the Lord. And so the point is, physical things, they're good. Do them, okay? If it's healthy, do it. But don't tell yourself that I'm fasting for a spiritual purpose when you're doing it for a physical. And let me offer one exhortation on this. If you find that you abstain from food for physical reasons more than you do so for spiritual reasons, you flip things upside down. You really have. You're you're putting more emphasis on your temporal body than you are on the things that are eternal. Now, I know what we do. We tell ourselves that, well, I'm actually doing both at the same time. But I don't think it works as well as we would like it to. And, And it'll make more sense when I explain later what fasting is and how it works. But let me just state this up front. If I'm fasting for a spiritual reason, any physical benefit's just a byproduct, but it's not the goal. It's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the spiritual thing I'm fasting for. And when I get hungry, the hunger's reminding me of why I'm fasting. I start thinking about why I'm fasting. And so if it's a spiritual thing, every time I get hungry, I'm thinking about that spiritual thing and I'm praying about that. But if I'm praying, uh, fasting for a physical reason, just because I want to lose a couple pounds or whatever, then the thing is, when I'm feeling hungry, I'm not thinking about a spiritual purpose. I'm thinking about, man, this hunger proves I'm going to lose those pounds for whatever, I don't know, go to the beach or whatever it might be. Um, but the thing is, you're thinking about this spiritual thing. See, the purpose of your fast dictates what you're thinking about when you're hungry. And I don't see how you could think equally about detoxing and some spiritual matter. So what I'm saying is both are good, but just pick one and do one. Keep them separate. Let the spiritual fast be spiritual. Let the medical one be medical. But anyhow, that's my little soapbox for a moment. Getting back to what Jesus is saying here, believers will make fasting a part of their life. He doesn't tell you, though, how often. So if somebody says you're not spiritual unless you fast twice a month, they can't say that. Okay, The Bible doesn't say. It's up to you. It's a matter of personal piety. It's between you and God. And that is the fact, that is what leads to the problem Jesus now has to address. If fasting's between you and God, the problem is a lot of people don't keep it between themselves and God. They want the whole world to know they're fasting. And Jesus will have none of this. So let's look at the second part of the pattern. In the second part, he tells us what not to do. So looking at the first part of verse 16 again, he says, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites for they make their faces unattractive. So what's going on here? Apparently, there were some Pharisees or religious leaders among the Jews that wanted the whole world to know they were fasting. And so Jesus said they were making themselves look gloomy, meaning if they were walking by, they're intentionally looking like they're in pain and they're emotionally burdened. That way, when you see them, you being a nice person, you'd be like, hey, what's wrong? They'd be like, oh, nothing, I'm just fasting. You know, and and then you'd be like, oh, 
You're fasting. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for fasting for Israel. We need you guys. And the reason why they would say that will make sense in a minute, okay? But, but pretty much, um, these guys are just putting on a show. They want you to see that they're fasting. But I figure I, I should qualify that, though, because when you do read the Old Testament, there are times where fasting is accompanied with external signs that show the inward turmoil, like ash and torn clothes, or clothes and then wearing sackcloth. Um, but here's the thing. If the fast is authentic and it's really... For the Lord, the person's not doing those things to get attention. They're doing those things because they want God to see it, not men. They don't care if men see it. Jesus has no problem with that because he's not overturning what you, know, what you see in the Old Testament. He has a problem if you're doing this for men to see. That's where the problem is because that's when it's hypocritical. And what's interestingly, or what's interesting is the religious establishment agreed with Jesus. The religious leaders at that time forbid people from fasting in order to be seen by men, to get attention. But even though they forbid it, there's going to be some in their ranks that still do it. Now, how'd they get away with it? You know, how did this work? Well, you first have to understand why fasting would be something that would get you praise from others. If somebody walks by me today and says, yeah, I'm fasting, I'm like, good for you. You want a cookie? Oh, no, you can't. You're fasting. Um, you know, but there's nothing in their fast that makes me think like, oh, oh. But back then they did. And there was a reason. In Israel, at that time, it was an agrarian or farming society. They needed their rain. Without the rain, harvest would be pretty weak and they would be in a lot of trouble. There would be food shortages. Now, in Israel, every year, there's a particular season of the year that's known as the dry season. And even so, the harvest depended on some extra rain still coming in the dry season, during those dry times. So a lot of Pharisees, what they decided to do, the most pious of them, is that they would fast twice a week during the dry season as an intercession on behalf of Israel to God so that God would send rain so that the people don't starve. Many Pharisees did this with the right motive. That's a good thing that they were doing. They were afflicting themselves for the benefit of the whole nation. And the nation was appreciative of it. It makes me think of being a soldier in America right now. If I'm wearing my uniform and I have to go into town where I drill, everywhere you go, thank you for your service, thank you for your service. You sit down, you eat somewhere, half the time some anonymous person, you know, covers your meal. And you're like, wow, these people really appreciate, you know, the sacrifice soldiers make to keep them safe. Well, back then, the Pharisees had that same kind of status. People understood that, look, these guys are fasting twice a week so that we don't starve. And they appreciated them for this. But we all know there's going to be a lot of people who aren't so pious, but they envy that attention. They envy the attention that comes from this. So they would also fast on those same days. Jesus brings this up in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, in the parable of the the self-righteous Pharisee and the repentant tax collector. The Pharisee's bragging about all those good works that he thinks merits him before God. And one of the things he mentions is, I fast twice a week. In other words, Lord, I'm doing this for the people. God wasn't impressed. He was impressed with with the tax collector. Well, a lot of hypocrites were like that guy. They would also fast twice a week, but with an evil motive. Now, for them, it had nothing to do with God sending rain. It had everything to do with hearing the words in the marketplace, thank you for your service. Your nation owes you gratitude. We appreciate your sadaka or your righteousness, and so on and so on and so on. 
Now, since these people were doing it for human applause, rather than the love of God and love of neighbor, they would put on a gloomy face. Because again, if their goal is that you would notice so you would thank them, they got to make you notice. Now, Jesus is going to tell us they do even more than a gloomy face. But first, he tells us they're hypocrites. He's been using this word since we've been in chapter 6. Remember, the word hypocrite originally was a term that referred to actors on the stage. Actors pretend to be someone they're not when they're acting. They're performing a role. And of course, on the stage, you want them to be really good at it because it'll make a good play or it'll make a good movie. But in real life, when someone is performing and acting like they're someone that they're really not, then we call that hypocrisy. And it is evil. These people were wanting society to think they were pious and self-sacrificial. They wanted people to believe that about them. But they, they, that's not who they really were. So it's hypocrisy. It's a lie. They were acting like this because they liked the attention. So even though they're doing the right thing, they're doing it for the wrong reason. And Jesus says they are hypocrites. And they prove themselves hypocrites by what he says next. He says, for they make their faces unattractive. Now, in Greek, it literally means they make their faces unrecognizable. You could barely tell who they are. They're going out with their hair all disheveled and their beards looking like Bugs Bunny gave them a stick of dynamite and they thought it was a cigar and it just blew up. Or, or like Jim Carrey after he beat himself up in the bathroom in Liar Liar. You could barely even recognize them. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to make their faces unrecognizable. That way, when they're walking around looking that way, you would say, is everything okay? They'd be like, I'm bearing this burden for you. You know, that's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. And so then that brings us to the third part of this. The third part is Jesus is making it clear what their motive is. He says they do this, quote, so that their fasting is obvious to people, end quote. They want to be seen. They want the fasting to be obvious. Now, one thing that I find interesting that I learned when I was studying for this is the Talmud, which is, uh, I guess a compendium of Jewish doctrine and theology that reflected upon Judaism, some of it going back to the first century. And in the Talmud, the rabbis complained about certain Pharisees. And the funny thing is, they're the sons of the Pharisees. But they have memories of what some Pharisees were like back in the days of Jesus. And there's a part of the Talmud where they said, look, there were seven annoying kinds of Pharisees. The first kind of annoying Pharisee, they called a Shimki Pharisee. And they said, these guys are the guys that carry around their religious duties on their shoulders so that everyone could see how pious they are. They were annoyed by these guys as well. They called him Shimki after Shechem in the book of Genesis. Shechem was the guy who was willing to get circumcised to look good in the eyes of Israel. He wasn't doing it for God. And so they're saying these, these Shimki Pharisees, they're just like that. They carried around all these burdens, but they're not doing it for God. And then, you know, there were other foolish Pharisees, but the one that I found the funniest was the seventh kind of annoying Pharisee. They called them the rub against the wall Pharisee. And you might be like, what, what's a rub against the wall Pharisee? They said some Pharisees, when they were fasting, would be leaning up against the wall as if they were too weak to stand on their own. And then you'd be like, what's wrong? Oh, man, it's this fast. And so even the rabbis were annoyed with guys that did this. So Jesus is in agreement with them. Where there's disagreement, 
is the rabbi said that at the judgment seat, God is going to throw these people in hell. Jesus doesn't quite go that far. They'll go to hell for different reasons. But all Jesus says at the end of verse 16 is, truly they have their reward. So what Jesus is saying is they don't get a reward from God for this. The reward they get is people seeing their act and maybe falling for their act. But that's a pretty lame reward. I mean, it doesn't last. To starve yourself so that someone will nod their head is as stupid as joining the military and experiencing the hell of war just to get a 10% discount at Chuck E. Cheese. You know, you're having nightmares every night, you know, because of the stuff you've seen. You're like, but it was worth it for that discount. No, nobody would do that, right? And, and so it's kind of the same thing these guys are doing, putting themselves through, through hunger just so people be like, oh. But then those people forget about it two seconds later. It's really foolish. Jesus' point is simple. A hypocritical fast is useless before the Lord. In the Old Testament, the prophets taught the exact same thing. I think the prophet Isaiah gives it to us in the most um, just poignant way. Uh, He has the most memorable rebuke of such hypocrisy. See, people in Israel were doing regular fasts, and they were patting themselves on the back for their fasting, when in reality, they were neglecting the things that God really cares about. And God doesn't care if you're fasting, like checking off a block, but you're not chasing after the spiritual matters that really matter for him. He makes it clear he won't accept such hypocritical fasts. And so I'm going to read Isaiah 58, verses 5 through 10, because I believe there's much we can, we can learn from this. God says this. He says, will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Meaning they're fasting, it's a regular fast. But God's like, is is that what I'm going to accept? No, he says this, isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to not ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. And I find that interesting because it's the same for us. God's saying, I will listen to your fast. I will be there. I'll say, here I am. But the fast has got to be right. And it's got to be for the right reasons. If you want your fast to be honored by God, then you need to fast the right way for the right reason. And he gives us ample examples in the scripture of what those reasons are. Our heart needs to be a heart that reflects God's own heart for this world. When we fast over the things important to him, he will answer. That's the point. When we fast for what's important to us, it's hypocritical. And then when we do it to be seen... It's hypocritical. What's important to us should be the things that are important to him. These should go together. If if they don't, then our fasts are just time-wasting. But anyway, verse 16, again, showed us how not to fast. In the rest of the text, Jesus is now going to show us how to fast, how to do it the right way. And we'll see that in verses 17 and 18. Now, this section is like a mirror of what we just saw. It has four parts, very similar. The first part, again, brings up the act of piety when you fast. But then the second part is opposite of what it was before. Before he said, don't do this, 
But now he's going to say, when you fast, do this. And then the third part back then was bad motive. Third part here will be the right motive. You do this for God's eyes. And then the fourth part before was you don't get a reward. Fourth part here is you will get a reward because you're doing it for the right reason. So let's take a a closer, closer look at this. Jesus begins by saying, but when you fast, the but means unlike the bad fast we just talked about. But when you fast, and I'm not going to belabor the point again, doesn't say if, says when, it's his expectation that we will fast. Also, before I, I move on, I need to mention something that I didn't say earlier. The Jewish people back in this time were known all over the world as fasters, as people who fasted. The very first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, did a pretty intense fast. And then when he was boasting about it to his heir, Tiberius, you know what he said? He's like, I fasted even harder than the Jews. And so that kind of tells you the reputation that the Jews had back then for fasting. And what I want to let you know, I bring that up to say, Jesus isn't against that. He's not repudiating the intensity or the frequency in which the Jews were fasting. He, he had no problem with the reputation they had for fasting. He only, he's not wanting us to fast less. He just wants to make sure we're not fasting hypocritically. You know, in, in the early church got the memo from him that we're supposed to fast. But they kind of missed his point. There's this document, I've mentioned it before, it's called the Didache. It was probably written early 2nd century, some say late 1st century, and it was like a, a handbook for Christian communities. And here's what they said. They said, don't fast like the hypocrites do. They're talking about the same thing. They said, they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, so we will fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. As if that makes the difference, okay? Here's the thing. If you have the same bad motive and you fast on Wednesday and Friday, it still doesn't mean anything right? So they they missed the point. We're supposed to fast regularly, and we're supposed to do so with a pure heart. The day you pick doesn't matter. And even the frequency isn't what's most important. It's the heart behind it. Well, Jesus's point, again, is that we would be fasting. And so now he's going to tell us how, how we should do it. And again, it's the opposite of how the hypocrites do it. Look at the rest of verse 17. He says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Now, what's this talking about? Does this mean you have to put oil today in 2023 when you fast? No, this is the same as today saying, take a shower, for the love of God, put deodorant on, and if you have dry skin, lotion it. If you actually have hair, comb it. See, back then, they used oil as a moisturizer and a deodorant. That way they don't go out all funky, right? And they wash their face every day so they don't go out all crusty. Jesus' point is, when you fast, look like you look the days you don't fast. That's the point. Remember, the hypocrites, (coughs) they were going out of their way to look like they're fasting. Jesus is saying just the opposite. You should look normal. If you refuse if you're saying, nope, I want people to see my fast, then listen, it means you, you're doing this for people. You're not doing this for God, okay? You're doing it for applause. But if you want to prove to yourself that you're fasting for God, then fast in a way that only God could see. And then you know, it's that simple. That would prove you're not doing it for men. That's why Jesus says, go out looking normal. That way people can't tell you're fasting, Now, the Lord makes it clear that if you do this, it shows you have the proper motive. Look at the first part of verse 18. He tells you to look normal, quote, so that 
Your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who sees in secret. So if your motive's right, then whose eyes are you fasting for? God's. Now, you might be fasting on behalf of other people, which is great, but still the fast is before God. You're appealing to God for help. So you don't have to go out of your way to let folks know that you're fasting. It's enough that God knows. Because ultimately, isn't he the one we're praying to? Isn't he the one we're relying on? And it's from him. It's from God that we get our reward. And what is the reward? There's a lot of rewards I could think. But on the most simple level, the reward is God honoring your fast and answering your prayer, granting you what you're asking of him. Jesus finishes in verse 18 by saying this. He says, and your father who sees in secret will, not might, will reward you. If you do this right, he promises a reward. Now, one thing that I found interesting when I was studying this is that, because if you just looked at English, you might miss this, but Jesus uses a different Greek word for secret here than he used when he was talking about almsgiving and prayer. Now, English, it looks exactly the same, but in Greek, he uses a different word that is only found here in the New Testament, but it's found four times in the Old Testament, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and one of them in particular, we, we know what he's getting at. It's He's, he's alluding back to Jeremiah 23, verse 24, which is interesting when you think about this. He's making a point. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a person hide in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? The Lord's declaration. That word secret there is the same word that Jesus uses here. And in Jeremiah's context, he's making the point that the false prophets were leading people astray, yet they thought that the Lord doesn't see them. And the Lord doesn't know what they're thinking and what they're planning in secret. And God's saying, that's dumb. Of course I know what you're doing in secret. I see it all. I'm everywhere. See, no one can hide from God. No one can fool God. God can spot the hypocritical almsgiver, public prayer warrior, and faster. He could spot them from a mile away. But here's Jesus' point. The opposite is true as well. God sees the bad heart, but he sees the pure heart. He sees the pure heart. He sees the beautiful motive. God sees it when a person truly loves God and loves his neighbor. Even if no one else can see that upright heart, God sees it. And Jesus wants you to know God rewards it. He punishes the wicked for their secret wickedness, but he rewards the righteous for their secret righteousness. That's the point he wants his listener to get from this. He's telling you, you could be 100% confident that God knows your heart. When you are doing the right thing for the right motive, it is impossible for him not to see it. It's not like, well, I don't think God saw that one. No, he sees it. And Jesus wants you to know that every single time the Father is watching, he sees it and he is pleased. You warm his heart when you do the right thing for the right reason. And that should be enough reason for us to do the right thing for the right motive. God will reward us, and more importantly, God is pleased with us. And that, again, that's a strong motivator. It should be. Now, we know he's already rewarded us with eternal life. We're not going to go to hell if we believe on Jesus. We also know that Jesus says we get treasures in heaven or the perfect age to come that will never, you know, wear out. But then on top of that, he answers our fast. He gives us what, what we're praying for with that fervor. 
So again, a lot of good reasons to do the right thing for the right reason. Take courage. Don't, don't get to the point where you, you stop doing the right things because you think he doesn't see is, is, is the point. Sometimes we get wary. Sometimes we get tired and we wonder what's it all been for. But what Jesus is telling you is no. Keep doing these three righteous things. Do them often. Do them for the right reason. God's going to grow you through them, and he's still going to reward you. So press forward with it. Now remember, last thing that I want to cover today, because that finishes the text. But Jesus, again, says, when you fast, which is making the point this is something we should do, that we're supposed to do. But most Christians in our context don't know a lot about fasting. And so that's why I'm thinking it would be a good opportunity for me to just briefly tell us what the Bible teaches us about fasting. What is fasting? How do we define it? Why do we fast? What does fasting accomplish? What are the reasons for it? See, Jesus told us how not to do it and how to do it, but he's assuming you already know what it is. He's assuming that you know why you would fast and what it looks like. But I'm afraid that a lot of us don't know that. So let's get back up to speed on that, and then the what not to do and what to do will make more sense for us. And so let's define it first. That way we all walk out of here knowing exactly what the spiritual discipline is. Fasting is this. It is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Simple definition, four words I want you to focus. It's a Christian that does this, okay? It's a Christian fast. Second word is it's voluntary, Does that mean we could force you to do it? Nope. If it's voluntary, it's not coerced. You're choosing to do this. Third, it's a form of abstaining from food. Okay, it's abstaining from food. And then fourth, it's for spiritual purposes. So if you want to know if you're biblically fasting, you are voluntarily abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Now, we often talk about fasting from social media or I'm going to fast from people, you know, or whatever it might be. You know, and look, sometimes it is good to take a break from those things, but the Bible never uses the word fasting to talk about those things. When the Bible uses the word fast, it is only spoken of in terms of food. So with that, there are four kinds of fasts that you can do, okay? The most common, if you're a note taker, there's four. The most common is the regular fast. What's a regular fast? That's where you abstain from all food, for a set period of time, for a spiritual purpose, but you still drink. You could drink water, juices, whatever. That's a regular fast. That's the most common kind of fast in the Bible. You stay away from food for a while, but not water. The next kind, the second kind, is a partial fast. A partial fast is to fast from some kinds of food, but not all food. For example, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12, he ate only vegetables. In chapter 3 of Matthew, John the Baptist only ate locusts and honey. So those are partial fasts, fasts from uh, some types of food, but not all kinds of food. And I would say if you've never fasted before and the idea intimidates you, it's probably not a bad idea to start with a partial fast because they are biblical. Maybe build yourself up into the regular fast. So you've got the regular fast, you got the partial fast. Third is the absolute fast. The absolute fast, you see this, Paul does this in Acts chapter 9, verse 9. Um, you know, Ezra does this in Ezra chapter 10, verse 6. This is no food or water. Um, on Yom Kippur, this is what the Jews do. This is the hardest kind. I've done it a couple times. Hate it. Absolutely hate it. That water is so important. But 
It is a biblical fast. So regular fast, you could have water, just no food. Partial fast, you just cut out some foods. Absolute fast, no food, no water. Now, the fourth kind of fast you're not going to do. It's the supernatural fast. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. To go 40 days and 40 nights requires God's supernatural intervention to keep you alive. This is not a repeatable kind of fast, and God has never commanded you to do it. So if you go out into the wilderness saying, you know what, I'm going to do it 40 days, I know he'll be with me, I do believe we will find your body, okay? (laughs) So the thing is, there's a reason why Moses, Elijah, and Jesus did 40 days and 40 nights. Moses stands as the quintessential representative of the law of God. Elijah stands as the representative of the prophets, the law and the prophets, the word of God, the word of God in total. And both of the men that signify it fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And then Jesus, who fulfills the word of God, comes along and in the same way fasts 40 days and 40 nights. There was a redemptive historical purpose for that. So please don't go out into the wilderness, you know, and think I'm going to do this. The ones that we're supposed to do are the regular fasts. Partial fasts or absolute fast, right? So those are the type that you should be thinking about. Now, any of those kinds of fasts can be done in two different ways. It could be a private fast where you are doing it by yourself, or it could be a group fast where you are doing it as a church or a family or a group of friends. In our text this morning, Jesus is referring to private fasts. Obviously, if the whole nation is fasting together, everybody's going to know you're fasting. You can't keep the Yom Kippur fast secret in Israel, okay? So he's talking about private fasts. Those are the ones that, that you, uh, you don't go around and showing people that you're fasting. And then finally, okay, so you got, the, you got regular, partial, absolute, and if you want to add miraculous, but anyway, you got public, and you got private, and then we could add two more. You got regular, and you have occasional. So you could do those three fasts either regularly, meaning you could plot it on a calendar and say every year on this day we do this fast, or it could be occasional. Occasional fasts are the most common. An occasion comes up that makes you think, you know what, I need to fast over this. So when you put this all together, just being real, the majority of your fasts are going to be private occasional, regular fasts, okay? And everything Jesus says in our text applies to that. When you're doing that, you don't go out there and put on a show. It's that simple. Okay, so that covers what fasting is and how we can fast. But even more important is why we fast. And when looking through the scripture, there's at least nine reasons that people fast to the Lord, biblically speaking. Okay, otherwise, if you don't have a biblical reason, it's just a diet. Okay, so let's quickly talk about these biblical reasons. The first and most common reason for fasting is to strengthen your prayer. I think Ezra chapter 8 verse 23 gives a good example. There's something about fasting that sharpens our prayers. It adds this special urgency about these concerns that we're taking to the Father. In Ezra's case, he and a group of people were going to take valuable items from Babylon to Israel, and they didn't want to ask the pagan king to give them guards to protect them. They wanted to say, we need no guards. That's how powerful our God is. Well, they didn't want to embarrass God, so they fasted and asked God, because there's a lot of robbers and things like that back then um, that would pounce on defenseless people like this, but they said, God, we're fasting, we're praying, please get us all the way there safely, and God answered. 
See, when there's something that's just very important and we're praying about it fervently, fasting is one way where we heighten that prayer. And by the way, this is God's idea, okay? God's saying if you want to add extra power to your prayer, then fast. And listen, it's not a hunger strike. God, I'm going to starve myself till you give me what I want. We, again, we will find your body. Um, no, this is God's idea. Something's important to you. Show him. Show him your heart. Listen, here's how your hunger serves you, and I alluded to this earlier. Okay, when you're fasting over a particular purpose, eventually that stomach starts hurting. Eventually your head starts hurting. That's like an alarm clock telling you to pray for the thing that you're concerned about. So let's say I'm concerned about evangelism in the church. I'll pray about it in the morning. And that's the only time because then I'm going to get busy throughout the rest of the day and I'm not going to pray about it again. But if I'm fasting that the Lord will grow evangelism in the church, then all throughout the day, every time my stomach you know, hurts, I'm going to be like, ah, oh, Lord, have us evangelize more because it's reminding me of why I'm fasting. So what it does is it heightens your prayer. You're praying all day with fervency over that thing that matters to you. So that's the most common reason to fast. It's really going to add some oomph to something very important that you've been praying about. Now, second biblical reason to fast is to seek God's guidance. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas, Paul's an apostle. He still prayed and fasted before ordaining pastors. I think that would be a good idea for us as well. Fasting makes us more sensitive to the will of God when it comes to important decisions. A third reason to fast is to express grief. And there's a couple, couple reasons to express grief. Judges chapter 20 is a good example. Um, when they express grief over um, uh, you know, a lost battle against a wicked tribe. Look, some of the earliest fasts in the Bible were people fasting because they were sad. Uh, you could fast when you're grieving over your sin, or you could just fast when you're grieving. And here's, here's one thing I would suggest. If you are in a state of grieving right now and you haven't fasted yet, I, I would recommend a fast. Um, just because, look, God already knows your broken heart. He knows your grief. He knows you're grieving, but when you're fasting, and you're going to be talking to him more about that grief. And again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be something that helps you. It's going to help heal that heart. And again, I think God's going to come alongside you more. He knows your pain. And so there are plenty of examples in the Bible of fasting over grief. A fourth reason to fast is to seek protection or deliverance. This was very common. Esther chapter 4, verse 16, we all know Haman wanted to wipe out the Jews. So all the Jews fasted for protection. David had somebody who was trying to kill him. So as an individual, he fasted in, according to Psalm 109 for protection from, that, from those who were trying to seek his life. Okay, so whenever we feel vulnerable and we feel we need that extra protection, the Bible tells us, why not fast? You could fast over it. And, and then again, it heightens your prayer about it. A fifth reason to fast is to express repentance or returning to God. Most famous example is Jonah. Okay, Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. He goes to pagan Nineveh, says, God's going to nuke you. I mean, that's our modern vernacular. God's going to destroy you. And what do they do? The whole city repents. They even made their animals fast. They're like, all right, we're not eating Cows aren't eating. Nobody's eating. Okay, so it was, it was a way where they were saying, we are showing, we are turning away from our sin, and we're turning back to God, and we're not going to eat um, just to, to show that. So when, when there's a fasting and returning to God, I mean a repenting and returning to God, fasting, that's a good reason to fast. A sixth reason or purpose 
is to humble yourself before God. This one's kind of interesting. The most wicked king in the Old Testament was King Ahab. And when God sent Elijah to say, hey, you're going you're to be destroyed for what you've done, King Ahab tore his clothes, fasted, and God said to Elijah, look how he's humbled himself. So now I'm not going to do this to him. So sometimes we've been prideful. Sometimes we've been living in a high-handed way, and then we come to realize it. And you know what? Maybe a fast to humble ourselves before God is a good idea. I mean, if a guy like Ahab could do it, what would be our excuse? Seventh purpose is to express concern for the work of God. And this is one that I think we should, we should do more of. Think of Nehemiah, chapter one, verses three and four. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down and he did not want to eat because of it. He's like, God, your work is not being done. Your city's in ruins. And so he fasted and prayed. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, fasted over the work of God to bring Israel back from exile into Israel, back to the, to the promised land. He fasted over it. Look, there's so much work of the Lord that needs to be done. Do we ever fast over it? Do we ever look and say, the walls are torn down and we're not moving fast enough on this? There should be occasional times that we are so burdened for the work of God Maybe that, that God would cause revival in the church or maybe for the salvation of one person we know or maybe that we reach our community better with the gospel. But, but that kind of work or maybe there's a lot of people who are having marriage problems in the church and maybe we could just say, you know what? Marriage is worth it. Let's fast for the work of God to happen in that. We should be fasting regularly over the burden in our heart, over the work of God that has yet to be done or needs to have a little more fire under it. And then the eighth reason is to overcome temptation. If you are in a heightened state of temptation, it might be a good idea to go before the Lord and fast. We know that before Jesus entered into his temptation, it was after a fast. And then finally, the ninth and last reason is we can fast to express love and worship to God. You know, we often don't think about this lady, but there's this prophetess named Anna in Luke chapter 2. Verses 36 and 37, her whole life is love to God. Here's what it says. It says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was getting well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God day, night and day with fasting and prayers. Now think about that. Eight decades I'm going to be where God gets served most, and I'm going to be fasting and praying a lot to him. What else other than I love the Lord? I'm not going to go get married to somebody else. My whole life is going to be for the Lord. And she expressed that love with both service and fasting. Sometimes it's just a matter of saying, God, I love you, and I want to feel hungry, you know, just to show you that I love you. I know you know I love you, but, but I want to do this for you, right? And again, all these are in the Bible, all these are in the Bible. I think one reason people don't fast very often is they're unaware of all the biblical purposes for fasting. Look, look, these nine reasons I just gave, I think all of us could relate to all of them. So if you know about those reasons and think, well, gosh, yeah, I got that going on in my life. I have this. There is a sin I've been wanting to really turn away from. I'm going to fast over it. You know, there's a lot of things we could be fasting over. We will never run out of things that we could be fasting over. And that is why Jesus can say, when you fast. Again, his audience should know this already. Now we do. Okay, God will bless. He will repay his children for faithfully fasting. Like the Puritan said, these biblical reasons, they will fatten our souls. 
And that is what we want. So it is my prayer this morning that as individual believers, we will take the spiritual discipline of fasting a lot more seriously. As a church, I pray that together we will fast for the things that the Lord calls us to fast for. A while ago, we were fasting uh, uh, twice a month for, for Brian. And then there have been times where I know we've fasted on behalf of an individual that was going through a trial. Those are all good things, and I don't think we should walk back from those things. We should seek out more opportunities to, to grow in our dependence on God by fasting before him. Listen, fasting correlates with the first and second greatest commandments. We love God above all else, and we're supposed to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So if we're fasting out of love for God and fasting on behalf of some need for our neighbors, I'm telling you, that is some soul fattening there. It is growing you. It's making you more mature. And again, you're doing the right thing for the right reason. Now, we, again, want to take what Jesus said here, like the other matters of personal piety, giving and praying. We cannot do it like the hypocrites. So when you're doing these things, don't do it to be seen. We do it for God's eyes, not for human eyes. Jesus has been teaching us how to flourish. And part of that is to be regular givers to the poor, regular prayer warriors, and regular fasters. If we practice these things faithfully and regularly with the right motive, the Bible makes it clear, we will grow. We will grow in our maturity. We will be functioning as those who flourish. So may we all strive to do these things out of love for God. We love him for saving us. And so may we love him for being who he is. And may we love God with these tangible acts of piety, but may we do so without hypocrisy. Now for any unbeliever here, Fasting, praying, giving to the poor, these things aren't your main concern, not yet. That's our concern because we're the people of God and these are the things that please God. But if you're an unbeliever, your biggest concern is that you're a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, and God is a consuming fire, and it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? You have a sin problem. He's a judge. You are guilty. A court day is coming. You will have your day in court, and nobody's getting you off the hook on your own. But here's the thing. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Now, God is one God who's three persons, but the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, became a man 2,000 years ago, and he earned that perfect righteousness that we've all failed to earn. Okay, Jesus did everything right. And then he takes all the sin of everybody who would believe in him, and he put it in his account, and he was nailed to the cross. So this is how Sinners can be saved. That the only perfect righteous man in history, the God-man, takes our sin, pays the price so we don't have to. That's how we get forgiven. And then he raises on the third day and credits us with his righteousness. But he only does that to those who turn from their sins and surrender to him in faith and believe on him and give their lives to him. If you do that today, you will be forgiven. You will have eternal life. That perfect age to come I'm talking about will be yours just like it will be ours. And then as we wait for that day, yeah, you can be given to the poor, praying, and fasting. Okay, but none of those things help you at all if you have not first come and surrendered your heart to Jesus. So that being said, we're going to pray.
Uh, and we're going to get prepared for communion and all that. And as we're praying, uh, unbeliever, you could pray in your heart that, Jesus, I'm turning away from my sin. I believe in you. I'm all yours. You'll be saved. And then come talk to us after because, you know, there's more to it. You know, the Lord would want you to get baptized. He'd want you to get plugged in and all that. And we'd love to walk you through all that and have a hand in that. So, unbeliever, that's what you're being called to do. Believers, what we're being called to do is to do these right things the right way with the right motive. And so may we do so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for you being God, you uh, teaching us how to do these right things the right way and loving us enough to warn us against the propensity in our heart to be hypocrites. A lot of times we do want to be seen for the good things we do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would purge that out of our hearts, that we would repent of it. And Lord, we pray that we would be those who fervently fast and pray because it's the right thing to do and that you would grow us through it. Lord, we pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, you would save them on this day. God, that you would save them this moment and that, Lord, there would be uh, celebrations in heaven because we know you say that the angels celebrate over even one sinner that repents. We pray there will be much celebration going on today, God, and we just pray everything to you and pray it all for your glory in Jesus' name.